Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today on the CMO Podcast, we are doing an Office Hours Special. On each episode of Office Hours, a panel of experts and I will be taking your questions about a topic that is important and urgent in our industry. If you have a question for us, leave us a voicemail at 781-786-8885 or email us your question at cmopodgmg at gmail.com. That's cmopodgmg at gmail.com. We will try to feature it on future Office Hours episodes. Today's Office Hours theme is on every marketer's urgent and important list, the future of digital advertising in a cookie world. How is your business or brand going to navigate this tectonic shift in our industry? Joining me to answer your questions on this matter is Deloitte's Tanisha Gordon, who is the self-proclaimed Olivia Pope of privacy and content compliance. Also on this panel discussion is Kelly Ledger, Partner Managing Director at Deloitte Digital, who specializes in cookie-less media strategy and ad MarTech translator. Welcome, Anisha and Kelly, to this episode of Office Hours. So, Tanisha, I have to start with you. On your LinkedIn profile, you say you are the Olivia, Olivia Pope of privacy and content compliance. That's a mouthful. Why do you say that? And what does it take to be the Olivia Pope of this category. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Yeah. So, you know, when I started out in this space, you know, 14 years ago, it was very difficult to explain to family and everyone what you do because no one knew the concept of cybersecurity or privacy. Like it was more of a physical concept in terms of, oh, you're invading my privacy. So over time and given the, the breadth of work that I do, I'm always pulled in during a crisis, right? So it could be uh, anything ranging from a data breach or a massive change in terms of a new regulation coming into effect, or um, an organization has been given an FTC order or consent decree, I'm always pulled in during some sort of crisis that then has a ripple effect across an organization, whether it's through the engineering org, reorg within the legal team, massive transformation. So, you know, instead of getting into the details of what I do and everyone loves Olivia Pope, I'm like, you see what Olivia Pope does? I do that when anything related to privacy and content and content moderation is a very big hot topic now. And it's where privacy used to be about 10 years ago in terms of its it's uh, nascency from a regulatory perspective. So how do you ensure that platforms and products always have safe and trusted content that abhorrent or, um, you know, abrasive kind of behavior and content isn't proliferating on your platform or, con- or, or your product? Like I support clients in figuring out, like, how do you design products that way? Like, how do you stand up the right types of controls and technical solutions to ensure that your product remains safe, right? Because then that will also lead to a crisis that we've seen mm-hmm. in the last few years. So that's kind of how I <laughs> I came into this space. It's just an easy way to, of explaining like what my day-to-day uh, firefighting life looks like from a privacy and content perspective. So you're a good fixer. That's what you are. I try to be, yes. Yeah. So without getting too far down the side, Sidetrack, uh, how did you get your original interest in this space? 
going back 14, 15 years? So honestly, I was supposed to go to law school. So um, I had some trepidations about taking the LSATs because I just knew I needed to go to Stanford. I needed to come to California to go to law school. And I was ahead um, about a year in undergrad at, at Cornell. And my advisor said, why don't you just get your master's? You're already ahead. That will make you really competitive to go to law school. I said, okay, great. So then I stayed an extra year to get my master's, which is I was able to get a two-year master's in one year. And that curriculum was basically government and policy and business. So I started taking classes um, in the business school and was just acing these classes. And they had like some of the, the most senior executives in these classes coming back to get their MBA at, at Cornell's Johnson School. Um, and I realized, wait, this is kind of cool. And then I met some people in consulting. I joined the consulting club and I was just like, do I want to go to law school or can I do something where I'm evaluating the law and consulting and doing something in business. And at the time, my best friend was at Bain and she said, I think you would actually be really good at consulting. You should Google if that kind of firm exists. And I went in and I Google was kind of new back then. So I put consulting government policy and Booz Allen came up and I said, that's where I'm going to work. So then I went and I worked there and I did strategy and transformation work and was helping like federal organization and multinational organizations really think through fraud protection and, and prevention. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there were incidents and things, breach, breaches happening that consumers and citizens didn't know about and just helping to ramp up the way that the, the federal government responds to those types of incidents. And then that morphed into me saying, you know, maybe I don't stay in the strategy and transformation side of the house. I kind of like this risk side. And mm -hmm. it was around um, 2008 when the market started to crash, where I said, oh, crap, strategy is no longer king. It's this thing called risk management. And like you can have the best strategy in the world. These banks had some of the best strategies and instruments. But if you don't manage risk, your strategy can go down the toilet. So then I Googled <laughs> Risk <laughs> services, risk it's a management. Good ad for Google. We're going to do it now. I mean, I just it's my it's my go to. And then Deloitte came up, so then I I was able to secure a, a landing at Deloitte, and I had to choose between joining the risk team and the strategy team, and I joined the risk team, and then I've been here ever since doing this type of work. That seems like a good call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Kelly. Let, let's stay with pop culture, okay? So I want to know what your pop culture analog is for you since you're the cookie-less media strategy and ad martech translator person. So who would you choose and why? Who would I choose as my pop culture analog? Oh, my God, that's mm -hmm. hard. I don't even know, honestly. Uh, maybe Madonna because she sort of reinvented herself. <laughs> Like, yeah, as the world going. has gone on and on. And maybe that's a bad example right now. Um, no, I feel like Madonna because she has just stayed relevant. She's understood what the currents and the trends are. And she has mastered them and made a business out of um, working not only what's happening in society, but have built that into her music and her livelihood. And I'm going to stick with that as my um, pop culture analog uh, slash. All right. That works. Person. Yes. <laughs> so how did you get interested in this space? Oh, I kind of fell into it a little bit. Sort of right place, right time, slash glutton for punishment. Um, I came from a background in uh, publishing, in ad sales for, like, physical magazines. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, started doing that straight out of college. And um, I saw the downturn coming in 2008, and wanted to get into something a little bit more uh, non-analog and more digital. And I went to interview at a company called Next Action um, that was outside of Boulder, Colorado, now known as Oracle Data Logics. And I was one of their 13 internet hires uh, or team members. They were starting a new business uh, called their cooperative affinity uh, marketing business. I can't remember the exact term. But essentially, we were a group of folks trying to understand, you know, they had this uh, offline cooperative business where they would take all of the catalogers information, you know, on the consumers who would get the catalog, what they would buy from the catalog. Uh, and the catalogs would essentially trade or understand um, what data 
you know, they didn't have from other catalogers and vice versa. So you had to give to get some of that data to be able to then market to consumers who weren't getting your catalog. So at the time that I came in, they were trying to, they being Next Action, was trying to understand how do we make this into a digital business? How do we actually use this data, um, such a robust data uh, database online for, I thought at the point, you know, at the time, and I still do, for the betterment of uh, consumers receiving ads. And that was uh, what they were calling their digital affinity business. And at the same time, they were working with a company called Rapleaf, which is now called LiveRamp. Uh, and that was the first deal that I signed to really connect the two technologies that each company had, Rapleaf having all of these email addresses and this third-party cookie, Next Action having all of this uh, data against you as a consumer, your email address, your postal address. How did we connect those two to create this online mechanism to be able to give more um, advertising companies, more brands, the ability to understand more about the consumer, right, as the consumer was online. And uh, it was really interesting because for about the first nine months, the technology didn't work. Um, and we just did test after test after test. And finally, we got the ramp uh, to work where we could connect the bits of data about you as a consumer in your offline world to the bits of data about you as a consumer in your online world and then became the third-party data and third-party uh, sort of cookie base as we know it. Um, so that's really how I got my start in this industry and have worked at small data companies and then now larger uh, data companies. That's now Merkle, which is now part of uh, Density Aegis Network. So I was mm -hmm. um, on the Merkle team and I helped build and co-found their M1 platform um, and their Mercury platforms, both here in the U.S. and abroad. And so it was great, just my background and understanding sort of getting data online and how to connect that um, to consumers and how to use that um, and, and what that means from a technology, ad tech and martech standpoint, your reliance, uh, what works, what doesn't work, um, so forth and so on. Well, we have the two right people today to talk <laughs> about this topic. So, so again, welcome. Now, before we get into listener questions in this area, and we have some good ones that have come in, I think we should go over exactly what third-party cookies do. So maybe, Tinisha, I'll start with you. When you're explaining cookies and third-party cookies to people not as close to our field as we are, how do you talk about it? Essentially, it's a snippet of code that your digital footprint is attached to when you're traversing the internet. So it's a mechanism by which the digital ecosystem can see what sites you're going to and what your potential interests are so that platforms, ad tech platforms, can then either predict or serve you up ads. So it's just a tiny snippet of code that basically allows you to be tracked on the digital mm -hmm. um, web sphere. Kelly, anything to add to that? It's pretty good. Yeah, actually, I wouldn't add anything. I guess the only thing that I would say is um, as a consumer, based on the last sort of seven to 10 years, you have the capability to go into a lot of these platforms or do a Google search uh, around how do I understand what mm -hmm. is being tracked against me so that you can see how the code and how those companies are classifying you and what type of data that they're grabbing as you do cruise around the interwebs and you have the ability to correct it, to stop it, opt in and opt out. Um, but yes, everything that um, Tanisha said is spot on for sure. I think this is going to be stating the obvious, but could you, could you riff a little bit on what the benefit is to brands and companies, which I think is kind of very obvious, but also to consumers? What's the benefit, the good side of this? Yeah, I'll say the good side of this is, uh, you know, the interweb webs, the internet, for all intents and purposes, is free, right? So advertising helps support a free uh, internet, a free ecosystem of where consumers can get news and surf Facebook and do whatever they do on the internet. So advertising helps support that. And if advertising helps support that sort of free ecosystem, wouldn't you want to see ads that are actually applicable to you, right? I I'm not a windsurfer or a kite surfer or any sort of uh, adrenaline junkie. And so I, if I'm a wasted impression, if you are showing me 
a adrenaline junkie, uh, you know, kite surfing uh, vacation uh, package. I am not your girl. So it's much better to show me a spa vacation ad because I am definitely your girl there. Uh, than your adrenaline junkie ad, because I would actually probably click on that and potentially buy that. Um, so from a content perspective, um, not only is it great from the consumer side to see ads that actually matter to me that I care about, that I'm interested in, from the brand side, it's a much more efficient and effective way to market to either your known consumers people that you know buy from you, or consumers who look like your known consumers, right? Like, um, if I am a known consumer to a spa, uh, maybe, you know, some sort of beauty brand is going to want to advertise to me because I sit in that sort of uh, ecosystem or realm. So I think it's really good because you actually see ads that are applicable to you and, and things that you're interested in. So Tanisha, take the other side of this. What's the, why is there so much controversy about this? Why is it ending uh, the use of third-party cookies? What's the dark side of it? I think a lot of consumers have become more aware of like their privacy and their rights and being tracked, whether it's digital or physical is kind of creepy in certain mm -hmm. ways. Right. So when you're not transparent about it and not a lot of people understand what a snippet of code is or just the technical components of digital advertisement, it could be kind of, you know, uncomfortable and I'd say, you know, a lot of the browser um, kings and queens, um, you know, have noticed that and have deprecated, you know, third-party cookie tracking with Google, you know, slated to do so, I believe, next year. And I think it's this more societal response to protecting privacy. And we saw a lot of the heart of this coming out of Europe, but it's now becoming more pervasive. We see a lot of states, um, you know, drafting their own or passing their own privacy legislation now. So I think it's just this new, new found awareness around privacy and, you know, being able to understand what your data is being used for, making sure that you're not discriminated against certain things, right? Maybe you want to have a diversity of ads, you know, shown to you. Maybe you want to be able to um, not see certain things anymore. And just being more transparent and allowing for consumers to understand that is going to be uh, important. I think, you know, the dark side of it all is that from a business perspective with the brands, it, it made them more lazy, right? Like, a lot of data is being collected across channels and there's this reliance on third party cookie because they don't have mm -hmm. to focus on cleaning up their first party data yeah. and stitching together the various data sources across channels, whether it's their call center, in store, on, you know, mm -hmm. online, like they didn't have to do that because they had this other rich data set to get more customers. Right. And I think the deprecation of third party cookie is just going to force brands to really up their game from a data governance and management perspective, be more intentional with their customer like engagement and customer relationship because cookies allowed you to just be transactional. Now you're going to need to be relational. So I, I think there's, there's an upside from a business perspective, but there is a, a dark side from just the privacy and creepiness and just being very transparent. And it's just going to, I think, make the entire, um, marketing and advertisement space more mature um, and make things more competitive and, and force brands to build more meaningful relationships. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. The availability of this third-party data, which Tanisha said made a lot of advertisers lazy, has been on the decline for some time, especially over the last year. Third-party cookies and other customer cross-site tracking technologies on browsers, desktops, and phones will be blocked in the near future, and many firms have already started 
or stop using them. And as we've already talked, cookies identify who the audience is as they browse and gives information on what and where they browse. This information goes back into data aggregators, companies like MX, Yodli, and Mobius, and or social media platforms, which is then used to build audiences and targets. That can be positive. It can also be a bit creepy, as, as we've talked. Any activity that depends on picking up a signal to using your digital campaign to drive targeting and measurement is affected. Third-party cookies give us identity and sensing across the open ad ecosystem. Now, let's talk about this and what this means to consumers and marketers, which you've already begun talking. I want to go a little bit further. Kelly, I want to start with you. How will this sunsetting, if you will, of third-party cookies affect marketers and brands in their actions, behaviors, organizational structure? Tanisha's already started talking about that, but could you go a bit further into that? Sure. So right now, what we're seeing from our clients um, at Deloitte Digital is really um, a need to understand the reliance on the third-party technologies. And I say that on purpose because it's not just data. The entire ad tech ecosystem is really built on third-party technology. If you are you or your agency are running ads in the programmatic uh, display space, they are working on third-party technology. Um, so what most of our clients are grappling with right now is um, what's impacted, at what level is it impacted? So, you know, red, yellow, green from a risk standpoint. What is the percentage of my media that's impacted? How does that equate up to revenue, right? Like, is it my top performing campaigns that are going to fall off a cliff? And those are some of my biggest revenue generators. And do I have the right internal or external teams to start making the, to start making the pivots that I need to make in, uh, you know, my external media, my O&O activity, um, looking at my stack, my ad tech and MarTech stacks, uh, my first party data. <laughs> uh, you know, Tanisha really hit on it, that third party technology or the easy button, as I like to call it, has really made the ad tech and MarTech world, you know, a super easy world for brands and their agencies to work in. And that's about to get blown to smithereens. Like, it's not going to work anymore. The amount of impact that this will have, this, these technology changes that both Google and Apple are making right now, are really going to push brands to have to reevaluate what, what do they actually need to maintain in their stack and do their agencies, if they have agencies, have the right skill sets to act on their behalf, right? Most of the agencies that we have in today's world are really good and trained really well on that third-party technology. But do they have the chops to work in that first-party data world in this new mishmash of ad tech and martech? And do they understand how to work from first-party data all the way through to paid media and measurement? And can they actually measure it? Right? Because it's not only how you're going to spend your media or your dollars, both O&O and offsite, it's how you're actually going to measure the effectiveness, and that's going to massively change. So that was a bunch of broad topics that we could definitely go deep on several of them. But I would say that most of our clients are really just trying to understand from a high level, what, what is it that they have that's relying on these third-party technologies, mm -hmm. and, and how do they have to start making changes uh, who needs to start making the changes on their behalf? Yeah, very helpful um, comment. And I want Tanisha, I'd like you to build on that. And you know, your comment a few minutes ago was about how people have gotten lazy in the marketing world. Now they have to stitch together lots of their first party data. Uh, when you're talking to companies, clients, what advice are you giving them to do that? to build their own ecosystem so that they can delight people, delight consumers, build their business, grow their brand, measure their results in the right way, measure their spending. So what's your checklist for them? How do you help them get started? In the way that I think about it, it's like from like 
what are your risks and what are your value drivers, right? So from a risk perspective, you need to do this anyway. Like privacy regulations are proliferating all over the place. Consumers are becoming more aware. Competition is more steep. We've seen like this, this need to drive towards more digital savviness, especially during the pandemic. So like you have a risk of market share if you don't get this together, right? So th- those are your risks. And then from a value perspective, like, you know, why have so much data that's continuing to proliferate in your environment if you're not going to make true, like really unlock the value of it, make true impact, really develop a a strategy or an approach to engage your customers properly. So what we see a lot of times from a from a value perspective is that companies are not able to drive or distill value because they have poor data hygiene. They're not stitching together um, customer data from their various channels, whether it's call center, um, online, uh, in-store, whatever the case may be. They have very like loosey-goosey third-party <laughs> third-party data sharing agreements where they're not um, really tapping into what the synergies could be, or maybe they have the wrong actual partnerships. They could have more accretive partnerships and helping them think through that. And then it's also thinking, okay, of all the data you have, can we dedupe some of this? Can we then figure out back to what Kelly was saying earlier, like which ones are which which data sets or your data that you need that actually drives your top line or your bottom line, you know, at a larger margin? And then thinking about what is your customer journey? What's your strategy or vision for how you transact with your your customers? Do you still want it to be transaction by transaction? Do you want to start upselling and cross-selling? Do you want to actually build a relationship with your users? And how do you do that if you don't know who they are? (laughs) You need to be able to identify them. So then that comes into the whole like identity resolution um, and identity management of your customers and making sure that you know Tanisha that walked into the store that wanted XYZ, couldn't get it. She went online phone died, let me send her an email on that. But if you have different identities, you're not able to stitch that together. And then think about the complexity, the increase in acquisitions that have happened globally. Companies and brands are acquiring other companies and brands, and they tend to not even stitch their customer data sets together, right? So I think this is this is a forcing function to get them to a place to drive more value from a business perspective, but also value for the consumer. Like if I am used to buying something from this brand and they acquired another brand, I would love for you to know that I'm also part of that brand. Don't resell me the same thing. Don't remarket to me um, the same thing. So I think it's a really good opportunity to really figure out how to manage your risk, but drive value for the consumer and for the bottom line of the company and the brand. I'd like you to both talk a bit about which categories or even companies you think are at the forefront of this, who are doing it the right way, who serve as a best practice or as a role model. We have a question later from a person in our audience about best practices. So who do you think, I mean, when the internet, you know, sort of was coming to life years ago, financial services seemed to be an early adopter, some retailers. So how do you feel about this? Who's leading the way? So let me give you two actual answers. I think there are technologies that are leading the way, and then I think there are brands that are leading the way. I think you have a bucket of technologies like CDPs and clean rooms who are going to make this entire ecosystem actually work. So um, there are folks like Snowflake and uh, folks like Amparity and the Adobe's and the Salesforce's of the world with their CDPs. They're actually going to help all of these, you know, date this data foundation layer, as I call it, um, power the future of marketing, power the future of digital advertising as we know it. On the brand side, I think some of the most interesting innovators are some of the folks you would actually never even think about that are that are so able to be agile and responsive and are so future forward thinking, it would blow your mind. And I'm talking, well, I can't give exact names right now, but I'll give you some examples. <laughs> um, we are working with a uh, a women's retailer, niche marketer, gorgeous clothing line, uh, very well known in the resort space. They are moving 
so fast and furious into what is this new world of marketing going to look like? It's it's quite astounding what their team is able to do right now, not only from this data foundation layer, they are pivoting just so many things inside their business from uh, connecting data signals from their consumers to orchestrating journey ecosystems of those consumers through the new tech that they're integrating to pivoting their entire media plan to make sure they're using these MarTech and ad tech investments to fully realize the monetization off of their site. It is like mind-blowing, exploding. Meanwhile, you'll have a conversation with one of the larger FinServe, Fiserv companies, and they there's so many people and so many departments they can barely get a steer code together to discuss what's important and what they need to do first. It's almost like the smaller agile companies are really going to be able to move fast in this world, whereas the big, big uh, behemoths that we all know and love are really struggling to get everybody in the boat to understand it, to start to move on it, and to start to figure out like what's their first step. I can't. I probably have five conversations a week with very large companies. And it's just like a massive quagmire for them. And obviously, we're there to help them sort of move the needle. But it's it's going to be a much longer runway for a lot of those companies, um, which I think is is a little bit unfortunate because the way the speed of tech is moving now, by the time they're able to pivot, they're going to have to pivot yeah. again. So. so it gets down to a, a lot of things, right? Decision making, agility, speed, closeness to customers, uh, removing silos in organizations so they can have you know, so they can share information and have one approach with their customer. Tanisha, what, what's your reaction to what Kelly just said? And how would you help those big behemoths who are having trouble getting started, get started? <laughs> can they be helped? That is the key question. Yeah. No, I, 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 I kid. Um, no, I totally agree with everything Kelly said. And, you know, if I had to pivot into like, what are some leading practices? I think one of the listeners asked that question. I think CMOs, Figuring out a way of working with whoever runs their VP of data management, whoever runs their product and technology org, and the privacy org, if you can get those four main stakeholders to come together to have an integrated vision and plan for data, like then you will catapult. Like, because what happens is you do, those four stakeholders tend to be doing their own thing. And it's like when a new regulation hit, like someone is notified and just given like an action plan or have to remediate something. But I think those four stakeholders, again, your head of data, data, it could be a head of information management, data management, whoever is doing your master data management, um, whoever owns your product and technology org. So would help with a CDP implementation, would help understand identity management, would help with implementation of a consent and preference solution. And the third stakeholder privacy, they would be there to inform your marketing and advertisement strategy, your first party data strategy, help you understand the compliance guardrails for jurisdictions, because you can have different campaigns, different um, customer journeys based on jurisdiction, based on privacy regulation. And then, you know, again, your marketer, like we've been talking about CMOs and like having their vision out front and really getting an understanding of what data they need to drive customer acquisition, to drive customer retention, to drive just customer relationship building is going to be important. And if they all figure out their space and then integrate that, then you can really move the needle. We talk a lot on the CMO podcast about the relationship between CMOs and CEOs and what they normally talk about. And they need to be talking about this because as you just laid it out, this is a company priority. And it crosses many boundaries. And the bigger yeah. the company is, the more complicated it is. So it's really something the CEO has to be worried about, thinking about as both a risk area and an opportunity area. So I think this is one that just needs to rise up and be part of those one-on-one -on -one weekly meetings CMOs and CEOs are having. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, you know, CEOs, you know, and the board wants to, one, again, back to the, the value and the risk, you know, pendulum. Like the board want to make sure risk is managed, right? Privacy, breach of trust, that's a risk. That's compliance risk. That's brand risk. That's reputational risk. Those things need to be managed. And what Kelly and I are talking about can 
depending on how well or how um, customers react to a brand managing these stuff could create or germinate any of those risks. And then from a value perspective, your CEO wants to know, like, how can we make capture more market share? How can we expand our footprint? How can we break into new segments, break into new geographies, break into new demographics? We need the data. We're going to, you know, we're in a technological revolution. Like there's a lot of interplay here. And I think the CMO is really well positioned right now with a lot of the changes that are so predicated on how data savvy an organization is, how tech savvy an organization is, how digital focused or forward an organization is. And they're at the center to kind of help create that narrative and keep a brand out front and keep the relationship with the customer. We're going to take a break. And after the break, we will be answering the questions you submitted about the future of digital advertising in a cookie-less world. All that after the break. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So let's get into your questions. If you want to leave us a question to be answered on future Office Hours episodes, you can reach our voicemail at 781-786-8885 or email us your question at cmopodgmg at gmail.com. That's cmopodgmg at gmail.com. Now, the questions. Now, there's no surprise from the discussion we've been having so, having so far. Most of the questions are sort of best practice related, sort of, okay, what do I do? Or privacy related. So the first one is kind of a fastball, and it is, what best practices should CMOs be applying with their various digital agencies to understand what they're doing behind the curtain. So we've kind of already gone to this space in our discussion, but if you could be really crisp about kind of the three best practices CMO should do. Tanisha, let's start with you. I'd say number one, build the relationship with those three other stakeholders I mentioned before, mm -hmm. yep. out of data, um, yep. IT and product and privacy. Um, the second uh, thing I think the CMO should do is to take stock of what data drives value for the business. And then on the flip side, figure out what incentive and value they can drive for a customer or user. So how, what's the value exchange for the user? Mm -hmm. So, you know, do that. And then the third thing is starting to figure out where, where, where am I placing my agency versus my users, my, my third-party partnerships or third-party agreements? Like, how do I stack up these relationships? And can my agencies give me the information that I need? And, and like what Kelly was saying earlier, really figuring out what the demand you have of your agencies and being very crystal clear about that so that you can figure out what your ROI is. So those would be the three, I'd say, leading practices. So one, you know, building the relationships with those core stakeholders internally, taking stock of like the, the data you have to figure out what value drivers, what the value drivers are internally for your business, and then the value exchange you can create for your customers. And then the third is looking at who you're parsing out your data to and being very crystal clear around what you need them to do to offset some of the ramifications, specifically focused on your agencies. Yeah. Kelly, next one I want to send your way because um, you've already talked about these two companies. What key systems do we need to look at to future-proof our business against the changes being made by Apple and Google? Sure. Uh, so number one is your CDPs, customer data platforms. Um, definitely start looking at the customer data platforms on the market. They are not all created equal. So depending on your business use cases, data captured, uh, really what you're trying to achieve from a personalization standpoint, marketing and media standpoint, you will want to vet multiple CDPs to pick the best CDP based on your use case. Uh, number two, clean rooms. 
clean rooms are, uh, you know, a technology that's probably been around for longer than most of us realize, but have just been created real sexy in the last sort of 12 months. Um, obviously, companies like Snowflake with their amazing IPO over the last year, uh, other folks like LiveRamp has created a clean room. Uh, you have sort of your independent clean rooms, and then you have your ad ecosystem clean rooms. So Google, Amazon, uh, you know, various walled gardens or digital giants have their own internal clean rooms. Um, obviously, that data will stay in that ecosystem at a high aggregated level. Your enterprise clean rooms will create more data, portability, and uh, understanding between um, various brands or companies. I always like to give an example of um, a large beauty brand, a convenience store, or or a, a large pharmacy chain uh, dumping their data into a clean room, both understanding and learning from one another to be able to go out and market and drive to in-store purchase or online purchase of that beauty brand, uh, you know, loyalty members, so forth and so on, right? Clean rooms give that ability from a aggregated, high-level, privacy-compliant, anonymized uh, capability. So all your data is safe in these clean rooms, and it gives you more uh, capability to understand and learn and then obviously go out and, and advertise or, or market too. Clean rooms are the future and will be the future uh, from a data understanding and acquisition, consumer acquisition space once the third-party technologies are sunsetted and third-party data is not as robust as it is on the market today. So those are the top two CDP, clean rooms, uh, technologies that, that CMOs should be looking at right now. What's the barrier to creating a clean room for, uh, you know, give me the company, Ford, Unilever? What's the barrier? What's the challenge? Why aren't people moving faster on that? Or maybe uh, I they think, are. Yeah, I don't think they're moving. I don't think they're moving as fast because they don't understand the technology and they think they may already have it, number one. And number two, you know, I think in the days of yesteryear, <laughs> if that's a term, uh, you know, setting up technology was a heavy investment and time. It was just a time suck. You can stand up a clean room really fast now. And with some of the SaaS models um, on the market today, clean rooms can be very inexpensive, even just to test and learn, right? Like you don't have to dump your entire data set into a clean room right now. You could test a very small set of data, have your data science crew in there and just playing around to see what they can do and, and what type of use cases you can impact with a small sample set of data. I think the main barrier to entry is just the lack of understanding uh, of what the technology does and who the players are in the market. And then also sort of, you know, is this going to be a massive time sucking investment from my team? And, um, you know, at Deloitte, we can help you with both of those things. There's my plug. Got it. Okay. Subtle plug. <laughs> okay. Tanisha, the next question is for you. How can CMOs best build trust and loyalty with their customers through privacy consent, transparency, and control? It sounds like you spend a lot of your life on this issue. So how can CMOs best build trust and loyalty? Taking a first principles approach, to, I try to do that with everything, but at the end of the day, like, why is this privacy concept or topic an issue? It's really because of transparency, you know? And then the second issue is sometimes brands and companies are doing things with data that they aren't supposed to do. So how can you solve for those things? And it's really about being upfront, honest, and transparent with your customers or your users. So I think whatever strategies you can roll out where you make the customer a part of your thinking, your solutioning. I, I lived in Europe for several years and the way the European brands and companies think about like customer engagement is, is pretty different from US-based companies where they are very quick to do, you know, working sessions and small groups um, with their customers and users just when they're changing the notice on their website. Like to get user feedback on like, what would be more clear to you? Can we add visuals and videos to this? Can we add caricatures to this so that you're more cl 
it's more clear and transparent about what we're doing with your data and who we are working with to do something with your data. So I think really bringing, figuring out strategic ways of bringing the customer or the user into your thinking um, and getting real feedback on how transparent you are with what you're doing with their data. And I think, secondly, everyone needs to now really beef up their consent and preference solutions. I think there is going to be a, a more of a larger shift towards consent because you 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 get to you get to cover your bases more with that legal basis of processing data versus just processing it and telling you in a tiny you know notice or something that you don't understand what's going on. So I think being more transparent, really building out a strategy that focuses on consent and preference will be super um, effective. And third, but not least would be, you know, figuring out what's the value exchange. I mentioned that earlier, like how can you incentivize customers to share data and then tell them what you're going to do with it and then protect it, right? Because I also do cybersecurity. So, you know, figuring out like, do I give you 15% off your next purchase? Do I make your your experience, your user experience in-store and online the same? Like really start to differentiate and show the value that the customer is actually going to get for sure sharing their data versus your 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 uh, your revenue going up and the customer is not being part of that equation. So those are the three things I'd say work. Um, and even back in the day when I was thinking about this for more highly regulated industries, meaning FSI and healthcare, like customers and patients said the same thing. They're like, I need something in exchange. I need to know what you're doing and why, you know, I want to know ahead of time and gamifying things. So if that happens in highly regulated um, industries, I think for other industries, you know, in segments, whether it's consumer or tech, it's going to be the same. Stay tuned because right after the break, we are going to give you our final thoughts on the future of digital advertising in a cookie world. Welcome back, Kelly and Tanisha. This has been a great discussion. Uh, you've already summarized a lot of actions you feel CMOs and senior marketers should take. I want you to give one piece of power advice to close this podcast to our listeners to get started, be a leader, make a difference in this area. What's your one piece of power advice? And I'll start with Kelly and then we'll end with Tanisha. This is your elevator speech. My elevator speech. Yeah. You're in the elevator with the top CMO from a $50 billion company. Yes. And you're going to the sixth floor. What's your advice? Sure. My advice is to get your internal steering code together right now. Mm. Get the people who touch this world. Uh, as Tanisha mentioned earlier, your data person, your marketing person, your privacy person, uh, your technologist, and your CMO yourself, right? in a room and start figuring out who owns what and how you're going to make your plan of attacking the uh, futureless cookie-less world uh, come to fruition and what that plan looks like from a media, marketing, technology, data, and privacy perspective, who owns what, and establish some concrete deadlines for uh, you know, testing new technology, pivoting your media plan. When do you want to be ready? What's your go live date? And start working towards that go live date and do that now. Don't wait. Apple and Google are going to keep making changes. Things are going to keep coming your way. And don't wait. Start now. Denisha. Love that, Kelly. Putting my privacy hat on, I would say one, <laughs> privacy isn't going anywhere. So everyone should just breathe. Exhale, <laughs> inhale, exhale. Privacy isn't going anywhere. And because of that, privacy should no longer be seen just as like some check the box compliance activity. It's a new way of doing business. It's similar to when, you know, security or some other, you know, industry disruptive, you know, compliance based activity came into play. 
security controls and measures don't just protect users. It also protects your business. It protects your infrastructure. It protects your stakeholder value. And privacy is in a similar space right now where it's now going to just be the way that you operate, the way that you structure your systems, you structure your campaign, you structure your customer journey flows, making sure that privacy is embedded at every space of your business when you're engaging with a user. Um, And I think once that's understood, then we wouldn't have these fragmented approaches. It's just going to be whatever you roll out is going to be compliant because you've embedded privacy into that. So that's how I would, you know, couch and, and advise folks to think about privacy as they move forward in their journey. And I guess I'll wrap it up. Thank you for both of those. I would say jump in, get involved, learn about this. And uh, I just did a session with 50 CMOs at the Can Lions Festival. We did a three-day virtual program this year. The top thing coming out, and I don't think I would have heard this a year ago, was they're very worried about not staying informed and topical and relevant. Things are changing so quickly. They feel overwhelmed. What should I go deep in? What should I, what should I not go deep in? Where should I spend my personal time? And I guess my advice is spend personal time here. Get informed. Meet with people like yourselves. As you said, meet with your agencies. Just get informed. Live it and get a strategy and get your team together and, uh, and get going. That's, what, that's the power the CMO has, right? They have, they have the power to bring people together, make it important. And so, so jump in. Uh, and get going on it. So thank you, you two. Awesome. This was, if, if our listeners want to talk more about this with either one of you, how can they best reach you? What, what, what's your preferred way to, for people to get in touch with you? LinkedIn is like my favorite place. Okay. Tanisha Gordon. I'm the only one there. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Kelly, same or something else? Yep. You can reach me on LinkedIn or first initial last name at DeloitteDigital.com. Okay, super. Well, thank you again. This has been great fun and very useful and very helpful. Thank you for your generosity and and, and the great spirit of this conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, Leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.